This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. Money Talks. Rory McIlroy addresses the controversial Live merger and he isn't fully happy. It's hard to, it's hard for me to not sit up here and feel somewhat like a sacrificial lamb. What about governments who do business with Saudi Arabia? We discuss with our panel. What do you need to do to keep safe from scammers? We'll speak to a cybersecurity expert after Gartha figures show a massive rise in financial fraud. And Greta Thunberg has been nominated for the freedom of Dublin City. You can join our conversation online with your comments and your questions on the hashtag TonightVMTV. Money Talks, that was the simple message that Rory McIlroy had following yesterday's draw-dropping merger in the world of golf. The man from County Down had been the most vociferous critic of the breakaway Live Golf circuit last year. But after yesterday's move, he said that while he still hates Live, he has made his peace with what happened. Yesterday was tough. Um, I think the shock of it, the surprise of it... um, I wasn't looking forward to this, to be honest with you. I still hate live. Like, I hate live. Like, I, I hope it goes away, and I would fully expect that it does. Um, and I think that's where the distinction here is. This is the PJ Tour, the DP World Tour, and the PIF. Well, we have heard no shortage of outrage at the merger, but how much of that has been hypocritical? Companies and governments have been doing business with the kingdom for many years. So is there really a difference? Well, here to discuss, I'm joined by Senator Tim Lombard of Fine Gael, journalist Aoife Moore, Lorcan Allen, business editor at The Business Post, and international trade consultant John Whelan. And I'm joined on Skype tonight by People Before Profit Solidarity TD, Mick Barry. You're all very welcome along to the programme tonight. Um, Lorcan Allen, I want to come to you first because I think you're a golf fan as well as being working in the world of, of, of business reporting and writing. And what do you make of, of uh, Roy McElroy's response there to this? Um, as we said, he, he has been so strong in his criticism of the live golf circuit and the golfers who chose to leave uh, the PGA Tour. But he probably summed it up best when he says money talks in this instance and you're better, uh, you're better off having them as a partner than as an enemy. Yeah, and I think it was as soon as this was announced, everybody's initial reaction was, well, what's Rory going to say about this? Because he has been at the forefront of the opposition to live golf, being very vocal about it. Um, and, you know, this has happened so fast and he, he suddenly, um, he's, he's caught off guard like I think everybody else was. Um, I, I, like, I mean, his comments were measured in that I think he was still 
towing the party line of the PGA Tour a bit. Uh, he did say that he still hates live and all of that, but I, I'd love to privately pick his brain about how he feels right now about all this because, you know, he was one of the guys that led the charge to show their loyalty to the PGA Tour. And then the very thing that he was loyal to has now sold him down the swan and done a deal with the devil, essentially. Uh, did Rory refer to the matter in moral terms today? It seemed very much he was picking up on his colleagues and people who walked away from the PGA Tour and how all of that would be handled, but didn't go back again talking about, I suppose, sports washing, Saudi Arabia, uh, which, which points in part to, to the fact that now it is this public investment fund that is bankrolling the PGA and in turn and the, the World Tour and everything else that he is he is a part of. So he, he needs to kind of get behind that, doesn't he? Yeah, there wasn't a mes mention of anything like that today. Um, and I think that's what's distinctive about this is that there's been a lot of talk, you know, the messaging has been, this secures the financial future of golf, as if golf needed its financial future secured. Um, it's, it's like, you know, there's some of the richest sports stars in the world playing this game. Um, but they're now, they've taken the Saudi billions that are on the table and it's the money that's talking here, as Rory said, and he has to sort of toe the line to say that, well, we've done this deal, it's for the money um, and, and secures the future of golf. But it, I mean, look, for as a golf supporter myself, I mean, it really left such a sour taste mm. at, um, you know, that after trying to put up a fight for it, they just decided to give in to Saudi's public investment fund. Yeah, and at the end of the day, critics will say, well, this is exactly what this is now, sports washing at play. Um, so talk to us about the public investment fund, uh, Saudi-backed. Uh, it also bankrolls um, controversial live golf circuit that uh, Rory claims to, to hate so much. But to those uh, not in the know, uh, who's behind that fund and how is it used? Well, the public investment fund is the Saudi government's, like it's an investment arm of the state to invest in other things. I mean, Saudi's wealth comes from its natural resources, its oil, um, and they've long been trying to diversify their economy away from oil into different things. So they set up this public investment fund to go out into the world and make investments in other things, much like Ireland has the ISAF, the Irish Strategic Investment Fund. Obviously, that's not fueled by <laughs> oil, uh, petrodollars, but it's, you know, it's the same principle that you're looking to diversify an investment fund and create returns. What is different about the public investment fund in uh, Saudi Arabia is that over recent years, the Saudi kingdom has started to use this as a tool to improve its image, I suppose, with the world. And that entity has made investments in not just golf, in football, in Formula One, in wrestling, in a whole cohort of sports where they see large audiences in international and they're trying to capture some of that and put the best foot forward of Saudi Arabia, <coughs> I think, to the world. So, you know, we've seen Newcastle being taken over uh, last year. Uh, Formula One, some of the biggest races are always held in Saudi Arabia. And this, I, I think estimates are that they've spent about $2 billion to date, which is pennies in overall terms for Saudi Arabia on sort of sporting events. And, the, you know, what we've seen so far, you'd say that this is only going to continue, uh, that Saudi Arabia will continue to like, make really large investments. And uh, that it is essentially paying, paying off for them. Um, I want to bring Mick Barry in here. Uh, so the consensus is that that golf trades its soul. What about what about us, and what about our economic uh, ties and links that we have with Saudi Arabia? Um, when it comes to our own deals, we have seen exports to the Arab world increasing by 23% last year, and exports to Saudi holding the highest value of overall exports there. Um, so, McBarry, you know, does money talk, as Rory McIlroy says, when it comes to our government? doing those key trade deals? Well, 
Rory McElroy says that money talks. Bob Dylan said that money doesn't talk, it swears. And um, certainly that's the case when it comes to the Irish political establishment. Um, here's an interesting question. Who said the following? Um, Saudi Arabia is a moderate voice for peace, both globally and locally. And this is a country that's now involved in uh, an invasion of Yemen with thousands, tens of thousands of people killed. Those words were uttered by uh, the leader of uh, the party represented on your panel there by Tim Lombard, uh, leader of uh, Fine Gael, former leader of Fine Gael and Taoiseach, uh, Enda Kenny, um, less than 10 years ago. Flags were flown at half-mast on state buildings uh, to mourn the death of uh, Prince of, uh, King Abdullah, the former leader of uh, uh, Saudi Arabia. So the Irish political establishment have uh, a long and not very glorious history of sucking up to the Saudi regime, which, let's remind ourselves briefly, is a murderous regime. I mean, we had 80 people executed in public on one day two years ago. Not an unusual event. People who've been involved in demonstrations, members of religious minorities, even people who put out tweets that were offensive to uh, the regime. Okay, right. And that's just one example of, of the many human rights issues that people have brought up um, with Saudi Arabia. So, Tim Lombard, I will put it to you. Um, what, has, what has been said by Mick Barry there is that, you know, we have, yeah, former Taoiseach and former Fine Gael leader, Enda Kenny, you know, talking about, about uh, Saudi Arabia in such glowing terms. We do the trade deals there. You know, we had your, um, um, your, your, your colleague over there uh, in recent times, um, Hildegard Nocton, who was in Saudi Arabia, who visited there, who talked about, you know, this, you know, growing economy, progressive economy. Uh, the exports go to show that we are happy to do those deals. And yet, you know, there's hand-wringing when it comes to sports deals. I think, look, the comments by uh, Roy McRoy during the week were very, very straight regarding the issue, regarding where he is with the actual golf deal itself. But the Irish economy work to a degree, very well with this um, entity itself. Like we've over a billion euros worth of trade. And I think it's about making sure that these small SME businesses have the opportunity to actually work within these economies itself. But we've been very straight regarding our condemnation of what's happening there. We've but it's always not been. stopping the deals. But I think if we stop the deals regarding what's happening on the ground, the knock-on implications that affect the Irish workers here in Ireland, like would we realistically stop an export of one billion euros going to the Gulf I don't think we will. I think that will affect every multinational and every small multi and every small okay. business here. So when you say you've been straight in your condemnation and, and we mm. have as a government, how? I think we've been very vocal, whether it's when? in the Dáil and the Shannon, speaking out regarding what happened in Saudi Arabia. I think Saudi Arabia as a state has issues and serious issues when it comes to women's rights in particular. And we've always spoken out about those issues. And I think we no, have no. to speak out about them. And like Mick Barry is trying to make a political point here regarding what Indy Kinney said, which I wasn't aware of. But there is jobs at stake here. There is businesses at okay. stake here. And we're All trying right. to work Mick, with everything. Uh, Mick Barry, you're disputing that, um, that we have criticised, the government has criticised the Saudi regime and it's done so in the Dáil Chamber. Uh, well, I would ask Tim uh, where and when exactly. Um, I checked the Dáil records before coming on air this evening and I counted at least seven examples in recent years where government ministers uh, were offered the opportunity to uh, condemn the human rights abuses in Saudi Arabia. Uh, and the general rule was that those opportunities uh, were not uh, uh, taken. 
Okay, I, Tim, I, well, respond I think, to that. Yeah, look, from my point of view of what we've done in the Shannon Chamber, whether it was Barry Ward or other members of the Shannon, we've been exceptionally clear in our views regarding the human rights abuses that will happen in Saudi Arabia. And look, if Mick Barry wants to check directly to Shannon, he's more than competent okay. and capable to do it. I suppose the question it. is, whether it's said in the Shannon or said in the Dáil or said anywhere, yeah. does it impact at all on these deals that are being done and what's happening behind closed doors in any instance? I think... So it, the empty words, the empty record. I actually don't think they are. I think the Irish public wants us to have a very important trade deal with Saudi Arabia, but they want us to be strong about what happens on the ground there. And we have been strong. And oh, I think... Can you have it both ways? I think unless we don't have it both ways, we're going to affect the actual small parishes and communities that have trade deals here. And that involves agriculture all the way up. It's over a billion euros worth of trade. So we, you'll stand up and say, yes, oh, human rights abuses, you know, what's going on there? We utterly condemn it. But you know what? That is not going to stop any of those I think what we need to do as an entity is to make sure that, that, that we as a society, the morals that we have regarding how we deal with human rights abuses and women's rights, we need to make sure they're appropriate in our state. We can't control everything that happens in the outside world. All we actually can control is how we actually deal with them. And if it's economic wealth for our state, we have to work with that. Okay. It's all about it, it's all about the money. Um, it seems to be the theme tonight. Uh, Aoife, would you concur with that? That there is a difference when it comes to sport versus the trade deals that, 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 that companies negotiate between each other, regardless of human rights issues at stake here. Yeah, I think what is always going to come down here is it is going to come down to the money. At the end of the day, what Rory said is, is money talks. I think the issue and what people take more of an issue is, is this the sport, what, sport washing element of it? You know, people don't know day to day what trade deals the government are doing with Saudi Arabia. And they're, they're not the only country with human rights issues that we do trade deals with. We have issues with China, we trade with Israel, different places have human rights abuses. But it's the sports washing element. Sport is a community thing. It brings people together. There's a lot of money involved and they are able to buy up and normalise the regime of Saudi Arabia and how they treat people. You know, there is a female activist in jail for 34 years in Saudi Arabia for tweeting. There are mass executions. There are human, huge human rights issues. And it's the same with China and how they treat the Uyghur we, population Are we not normalising well? that in, in doing the deals with government and having sort of, you know, ministerial trips yep. um, over to Riyadh to see, you know, in establishing relationships, say, between, you know, and DCU say, and, and, I, and universities in Saudi that are aimed yeah. at, at female empowerment. Yeah. But also we are seeing these, these crimes against women daily in I, Saudi Arabia. I would say, right, for the, the billion euro that these parishes apparently need from Saudi Arabia, that's one thing. Sending a minister to Saudi Arabia, especially a female minister to Saudi Arabia, is the same as sports washing. It's basically normalising the regime there. You know, you can call out everything they do. But when, the, once you then send our leaders to that country, what you're saying is we are willing to overlook what you're doing here. But surely sending a female member to, of the cabinet is actually really positive because it actually shows up how we view the women and we want to empower politics and society by making them the most important thing in you it. You know, what you're doing is you're sending a strong female woman to stand next to someone who doesn't believe women deserve the same rights. Then that's an issue for that individual rather than the Irish state. But you're the using Irish... that woman as a pawn then for uh, the regime? I don't think so. I think in many ways it's... it's there, the um, discussion is kind of getting into a very narrow focus. The, 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 John, yeah, the, sorry the to bring you in here and, just and around, around the issue because yeah. you work in the export business. Sure, yeah. And, and it, is, it is big business that, that, that we do with Saudi. Absolutely, it's business yeah. that's growing. Um, is, uh, when it comes to Irish trade links to Saudi, are those links discreet but strong? The, the, the links are strong. I mean, say the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the PIF fund has just uh, 
in the process of closing out a deal with Pembroke, one of our big leasing corporations here in the last few days, covered in the papers. So there's continuous trading going on. It was about 2.5 billion last year. Pharmaceuticals and, and, and uh, aircraft leasing were two of the big ones. So there's an ongoing trade, but from a business point of view, what happens is we look at who's the, uh, the person and the credentials we're dealing with. We then check to see, uh, are we uh, pro- uh, following the state and public bodies regulations in Ireland? And then we make sure that we're sticking with EU sanctions and UN sanctions 100%. If they change, business will change. If they don't change, business won't change. So we did about 2.5 billion in exports last year between services and goods. It's good business. And unless there's a change in the regulations of the state, the UN and the EU, we will continue to do so. And and there's no particular logic to it. Would you say, and I presume you would say, uh, it's just, you know, with with these deals, oftentimes it is small, medium, you know, businesses dealing with other businesses in, in Saudi and human rights abuses do not come into the conversation. No, it's not that the human rights, this is all part of the Vision 2030 uh, Saudi Arabia plan that was put together. Uh, a large part of it was so to set... what's that? Well, it was to set up the um, the, uh, the investment fund, the public investment fund that, we're, that is now being used for the what's called sports washing. But it's the first element of what they put down in the 2030 plan to try and get their own people much more involved in um, sports and entertainment. And their, their population is very little into that. So this is a big move by them. They have the money and they can do it. So they're moving across soccer, uh, uh, golf, and Formula One as, as early st- stages. But they have another major uh, move in that, um, and that's this whole business of uh, getting more, um, there's a very, uh, whatever about it being a wealthy nation, there's a big poverty section there. And they're, they're, they put a lot of money in that plan to uh, educate and train up about 500,000 uh, civil servants and uh, funding for the SMEs. It, it, it's, it's a, it, you, you have to take it as a major part of the plan. An interesting point was made by Anthony Blinken when he was visiting um, uh, Saudi Arabia two, two weeks ago. He was criticised, much the same as we're hearing some of the criticism. He says, you've got to look to the future, and that's the point we need to do with Saudi Arabia. Yes, we know where they come from, but we have to look at where they're going in their Vision 2030 series. Uh, Mick, to bring you in on that, um, and it was a point that was actually made by Paula Carrington about you know, the defence of doing business, be it in be it sport or in trade, as a means of effecting change. Um, Pork Harrington saying inclusion and trade has shown to improve and change countries for the better. In the case of Saudi Arabia, do you think there is evidence of that? Or do you think that there is, it is possible to see progression uh, the more that you know, there's interaction with other com- countries, the more that these trade links are established and grown? No, I don't believe that increased trade links or increased business imp- improves the human rights situation. In Saudi Arabia, I don't see any evidence of that. I do see evidence of the fact that there is uh, big money and big profits to be made uh, from trading with the regime. And I think that if you don't want to break off trade links altogether, at the very least, at the very least, you can do the following things. Uh, Number one, um, not engage in uh, sport. Number two, uh, don't take up the offer to have Irish universities set up campuses in the King Abdullah city, a city which was, was built in 20 years uh, with no regard to workers' rights. And last but not least, uh, if there has to be contact between the Irish government and the Saudi regime, stop sucking up to them. 
in, in the fawning way in which government ministers, particularly Fine Gael ministers, have done over the last 10 years. Uh, Mick, I want to ask you, if a Saudi-backed company emerged bringing jobs uh, to Blackpool where you are in Cork, would you protest? I think uh, I would certainly ask questions uh, about uh, who the company are, uh, how they got their money, uh, and uh, I wouldn't stay stum, I wouldn't shut up uh, about uh, human rights abuses that are taking place there. Okay, but is the that similar? I want to ask you, is that not similar to what we are hearing from government? We're, we're hearing from government representative here tonight that the, we don't, they, don't, they don't stay stum. They do talk about, you know, human rights concerns and all of those things. Notwithstanding that, they still want to do business with Saudi Arabia. Are you not but saying the same thing? No, I'm not. Uh, because they don't, Claire, uh, despite the protestations of Senator uh, Lombard, um, the criticisms of the Saudi regime by the Irish political establishment uh, have been at best, at best, uh, a murmur. Uh, we've seen the track record there, flags flown at half-mast and the comments of uh, Enda Kenny. I would not take that approach in a million years. Okay. Um, Aoife, to bring you in on, on all of this um, here again, and uh, Micheál Martin kind of weighed in uh, mm -hmm. on the issue. He was asked about it today. And what, what did he have to say in Ireland's approach and the issue around, and I suppose the allegations that are out there, all this talk around sports washing. Yeah, so Micheál Martin was out today and he was asked about it and he said they have concerns about the human rights framework in Saudi Arabia. He said that we have articulated that, frankly, through our, our ambassadors and on a government-to-government -government basis. He said as a, span, a fan of sports, he said that he does have serious concerns about this. He said it's the same as Russian oligarchs using extraordinary sums of money to purchase football clubs. And he said that as a person who's very passionate about sport and at the end of the day, the need for sport to be independent and keep to its values and keep to its principles. And, so and no that, real condemnation. That's, that's the Saudi Arabia's way of getting into sport exactly. and more of the people this, in sport is to involve them with their funds in the sports world. I must say, how else are they going to be for a nation that doesn't play soccer or anything else, you can, how are you going to get you, all the people involved? You, you people to play soccer without buying entire soccer clubs and entire sports. But there's nothing wrong with that. But there I is say, why, why, there can't, is why shouldn't you do that if you're to involve your own people but and get them interested in, in, in sports? From, the Irish, from Michal Martin's comments as well, though, I mean, there is Saudi investment in Irish sport already today. I mean, our horse racing industry is awash with Saudi money. Yeah. There are studs here in Ireland that are Saudi-owned. Um, and some of our race courses are very dependent on Saudi money that comes through to the month. So and is there a hypocrisy there? Well, it's already saying, here in Ireland. You know what, you know, doing deals with government is what, is one thing and, and state-backed and supporting business and, you know, makes the world go round. But, you know, there is an issue with sports washing when we are implicitly supporting all yeah. of that within our own country. And like Ireland's bloodstock industry, it's an industry as well as a sport. I mean, we export a lot of our, our bloodstock. So, you know, there's it straddles both worlds of business and, and sport. But, you know, Saudi money is washing around Irish sport already. So. But there is an issue about regulatory approval here. Like, there's no regulatory approval needed for any of these sporty organisations to be bought up, whether it's a soccer club, whether it's a golfing entity. And I think Pascal made that point this morning. I think we need to be looking at how we're going to look at sporty organisations and how they could be bought into a scenario that they could be a part of the so-called greenwashing of sport. And for that to happen, we're going to have to make sure that there's an approach that's going to tie everyone into that world. So in other words, we're looking at the Premiership. One club is already gone. How many more will go to Saudi money in time? Does there need to be a regulatory approach, in particular by the European Union, to make sure that we don't have a scenario... 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. That the majority, if not all, of our sporting activities could be bought up one by one by maybe a Russian or a Saudi and the knock-on implications that we could lose that kind of identity that's so important to us. Yeah, and similarly, I suppose, just when it comes to export deals, like, do we do we hold it to some standards of, you know, what we will or won't accept? Do you think that there think, are those standards I think there? We, I think we've heard from the panel tonight what's, what's involved when we need to deal with the Saudis. We have to make sure we're dealing with an appropriate entity, that we're not dealing with an entity that's not going to be involved in human rights abuses. And right. that's really But important. there are loads of funds, aren't there? I mean, John, we're talking about not, that, that, that we're not going to deal with an entity that isn't involved in human rights abuses. But if it's the PIF and the public investment funds, you know, and that's bankrolled by the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, who's making uh, yeah, the you, you have, you put it, With any country you're dealing with, you have to put it into the context of where they were and where they're going to and, uh, Where do you think you know, they're going to? Well, the, the, uh, in their Vision 2030 series, they make it very clear that the path is towards um, uh, uh, improvement right across the board in all walks of life, including sport, but also in terms of how they do business, getting SMEs into the business because they're worried about their over-reliance I mean, have, the, have they made those social strides, yeah. do you think, Aoife? <coughs> oh, they are. They're moving, like, but it's well, very—it's a slow process. There was a law brought in last year that gives men guardianship over women and women have to ask permission to do things in men's life and that was only passed two years ago. So I don't know where in 20, between now and 2030 they were going to decide they're this new progressive country where women well, can do whatever there they is, want. There is an issue with Islamic faith and the, it is an Islamic state. So you have to allow for a much slower move Movement I suppose you don't have some, uh, some areas. But it doesn't apply to all Islamic states. No, I know I what we're talking about in no, terms of no, the, the human it, rights abuses. But, but here. It, it does take time to move from. It goes uh, beyond, so say, goes a, beyond a religion, Islamic, you know, people yeah. would say, when it comes to, to what we are seeing yeah. um, in that country um, with regarding you know, persecution of minorities and, and you know, the execution and, and nobody, of the Nobody's about, encouraging about that, but uh, in terms of where, you're going, where they're at and where they're going to, all the signals would be that they're moving in the right direction. Okay, uh, and Lorcan, just briefly, I mean, is there a plan just to keep, you know, keep going with the deals, but that they do take place behind closed doors and is, in as much as possible, the government likes likes it that way and to keep it discreet? Uh, well, I mean, if Borbia is going and doing trade missions to the Middle East, uh, Saudi is generally on its list because there's 45 million people living there. They're wealthy. They can afford Irish produce. Um, they don't hide that fact. They actually usually bring journalists on them um, uh, to, to see what these countries are like, where the markets are, where the demand is. Have so you been? I've never been to Saudi, no. Yeah. If uh, you were to go, do you think you'd be, you'd be able to ask the questions in, in, in somewhere like Saudi to kind of put those questions? 
Yeah, I mean, that, I mean that's the like I mean that our job Creating as Western jobs. media is that we should be doing that. Yeah, and absolutely because I mean there's Irish companies that have made investments directly out in our new or out in um, in uh, in Saudi Arabia, including our the company that owns Kerrygold Butter. They have a manufacturing factory out in Saudi Arabia. So um, I don't think it's done behind closed doors. I think sports washing is obviously more obvious to us because we see it, but businesses happens all the time and we don't see it. It's not as visible to us as sport. All right, there we'll have to leave that for now. Uh, my thanks to Mick Barry and to John Whelan. Coming up next, how do you not fall foul of scammers? Regard the figures showing those crimes are on the rise. Stay with us. Welcome back. We've all got them, those texts or emails that look real from a bank or some other provider. Do you click on the link? Do you leave it alone? Well, these types of scams are, according to Garthi, on the rise. Figures show a 560% jump in the number of bank accounts being taken over by fraudsters since the pandemic. So what do we do to protect people? Well, Senator Tim Lombard, Aoife Moore and Lorcan Allen are still with me. And I'm joined on Skype by cybersecurity expert Ronan Murphy. Um, you're very welcome along to the programme, Ronan. Um, and I suppose first I want to turn to someone that could have fall, fallen, fallen victim or very nearly fell victim to a scam. Aoife, just on, you, you got a text. It was obviously going to be me. <laughs> you, clicked on the, you clicked on the I link. I got a text from Bank of Ireland and it came into my phone as, you know, it said on the contact line, yeah. Bank of Ireland. And it had a link, and the link was like Banking 365. It all looked exactly the same. And I can't remember what it said, but it all looked very legit. And I clicked it, and it took me to the Bank of Ireland website. And everything looked exactly the same. When I put in my, so you have a six-digit code, and I put in, they asked you for three random numbers. They said I got the, it wrong on the first attempt. And then I had to put in different three numbers, which is I know you find... At any point yeah. were you yeah. thinking... But because I usually put the numbers in wrong at the first go anyway, <laughs> I was like, oh, maybe it was me. <laughs> and as soon as I put it in, it just on clicked. I was like, Eva, you shouldn't have done that. I phoned Bank of Ireland straight away. They cancelled my cards and changed my online. So they said there had been no activity because it was straight away. But I was, you know, given off about myself on the phone. And I said, oh, you must think I'm so stupid and, you know, I shouldn't have done this and I should have been more intelligent. And the fella said to me, listen, we have this morning and night. He says, I've had doctors, surgeons, people who work in banks constantly. We get these calls because they're so, it looked, it was a cloned website. So it looked exactly the same. It looked incredibly legitimate. Yeah. And um, he didn't get anything, but um, now my dad's watching this, he's going to kill me. But <laughs> it was, it could have happened so, so quickly. Ronan, it goes to prove that, you know, uh, if it can happen to Aoife, it can happen to anyone. But it, it does go to show, and even when she was talking to the bank, they were like, we are, de we are overwhelmed with this, essentially. Are banks um, overwhelmed with the, the, the scamming that's happening now? And I suppose other organisations as well. Are they becoming more, um, fraudsters becoming more sophisticated on how they target people? Yes, Claire. I mean, they're certainly getting more sophisticated and there's no simple solution to this for a number of reasons. Um, first and foremost, the internet uh, provides a high degree of anonymity. 
for scammers. It allows them to conceal their identities, their locations. It makes them. It makes it very easy for them to operate across borders. They can uh, they can create fake profiles, fake websites. They can use anonymous communication channels, and they can employ lots of different techniques to hide their identity. And it's a global reach, because the internet is borderless. It's a borderless platform. It enables. Uh, scammers to target victims worldwide. They have a vast audience and they can target uh, individuals with specific campaigns that are built for each jurisdiction. And then in each country, there is uh, boundaries with the internet that traditional laws uh, don't cover. For example, scammers can operate from countries with weak regulations where the jurisdictional complexities create a, a high degree of challenges when investigating or prosecuting cross-border scams. And then there's the speed. These guys can operate instantaneously. It's very inexpensive. Um, and scammers can create huge email campaigns, fake website campaigns, and they can target millions of users with cutting-edge technology. So it's a real problem. Yeah. So what's been the fallout for somebody, you know, an expert working in the area of cybersecurity, Ronan? Uh, what has been the fallout for victims of cybercrime and online scams? Are we seeing people lose very large amounts of money at this point? Or has it been stopped at a certain point that people don't lose everything when they get, when they get targeted? Um, it, I've seen absolute horror stories where I've seen businesses and individuals lose their life savings because they clicked on a link. I mean, it's profoundly devastating. In certain scenarios, uh, the bank will cover the fraud and they'll get their money back, but it could take years. And the damage, the psychological damage, the financial implications are really devastating. And these attacks and the complexity of them, I mean, they're often what we refer to as multi-channel. So they attack you on email, they attack you on social media, they attack you on phone, they attack you on SMS, they attack you on websites, they attack you on messaging apps, they attack you on voicemail. They, these guys use every potential avenue to try and get at you. So it's, it's unrelenting. Right, okay. And when you put it that way, with people, you know, losing their life save, savings, you know, livelihoods going down the drain at the click of a link, uh, Tim, the criticism we're hearing from opposition is there's, there is no strategy. There's not a national strategy on economic crime and fraud, and it has made us ripe targets. Um, look, I think Ronan's contribution has been very, very helpful. I think he really kind of set the actual parameters of where we are. This is an academic, that's something new to us in many ways. We've seen dramatic increase in figures, in particular in the last three years in this issue, ever since COVID. Like, these figures have absolutely gone through the roof. And the response from the Garrishy Corner have been quite competent and capable in many ways. But we're dealing with an absolute epidemic of stuff. Okay. Just to Even go back to the, the national strategy on yes. economic crime and fraud... It has been promised. We've heard nothing about it. I think, uh, if you, from what I, from my understanding of the issue, the minister, who's newly back in place now, has her officials are working on it, and it's a priority for the actual department itself. But one of the things that I think that we should be looking at is a cooling off period when it comes to transactions. Like I had conversations with this individual in Cork who had two thousand eight hundred euros taken out of her account. 
And her issue was quite clearly that there was no cooling off period. In other words, she was saying there should be a 24 hour cooling off period for all these tr transactions. But sure, it's fraudsters. And, and I think if you had the you banking... You know, but if, if it's people taking your money, I mean, they're not going to give you 14 days of No, but I think it. we need to work with the Banking Federation and other federations about how we deal with these transactions, maybe even all transactions going forward. If you had the opportunity to have that cooling off period put in place, then you could actually take before, the heat out of it. Before you can access your own money, if it is you or if it is somebody else. Well, I mean, let's, I mean, talking about the practicalities of that, Lorcan, I mean, do, do banks need to do more here? They're looking, they're looking for kind of a, a Garda, being able to access a Garda database to help them as well, aren't they? Yeah, look, I mean, what Roland outlined is like the complexities of this, the sophistication of the scammers. And they're adapting all the time. Like every month there's a new scam going around in Ireland. And it's not just consumers as well. They're targeting businesses. A previous employer of mine was hit by a um, ransomware attack and it shut down the entire business for the guts of a month. Like, mm -hmm. um, And even businesses with the resources to invest in cybersecurity actually aren't doing it in Ireland. Repeated surveys show that like it's a less than 10% of Irish businesses are investing in this because they don't see it as a priority. Now, when there's obviously economic impacts to them, I think this will rise in, as a priority. But, um, you know, what we're being, it's clear what we're being faced with is a very sophisticated, uh, adaptable, modern, and even you'd wonder is the capabilities there in business in Ireland to actually be able to handle this. Um, uh, certainly not in-house. That's why there's, you know, they're probably going to companies like Roland's to, to help them on this. But like for the average consumer, I mean, it is a very daunting task. I mean, to, and I suppose the messaging will be from banks that they would need to be constantly communicating with their customers to, uh, if there's ever hints of this thing that like, you know, awareness campaigns. Do you think that uh, people need to be better informed about scams, uh, Aoife? Do you think that the government could be doing more in the way of an information campaign? Like that is the criticism is that there's no national strategy. We will get Ronan's take on it, mm. but you know, the argument is there, these guys, they're so quick to react. Yeah. What can we do here we that's know, gonna stop this happening? But we know what we can do. We already had a review ended this, the Hamilton review already told us what we were supposed to do. There are recommendations, things like the guards and the banks, which the banks have been requesting for a shared database with the Yardie so they can report this type of fraud more quickly and it can be shut down more quickly and can they can work with each other more quickly. Legislation needs to change. There was 20 or 30 different recommendations. As far as I know, have not been implemented and we have not had a report since 2020. So we know that there is action that we could be taking. I think what's happened is as a nation, as a state, we were caught in the back foot with this. There's no doubt about it. We had to put, and Helen McEntee had said that, we have put millions under the Gardaí and we've put millions under, you know, the new fraud squad or whatever it is. But it's not been enough because we were already starting from the back foot. But, but I, I do think you're right. I think especially for me, you know, my granddad's still alive, the notion that he could be caught in one of these things, because I got caught in one of them and my granddad's 86. There are people, especially people who aren't digitally literate, that's where I would have serious concerns. And I do think it has to be a whole society approach about speaking to those people and telling them about being aware about scams and stuff but, like that. But statistically, it's people under 35 are the mm -hmm. people that are being caught most. And people I think, who have their phones on them and that, that's the issue. Day, and that's the issue. Rather than people who don't and necessarily have exactly. the same access. And I think to, we just need to, to be, to, like the awareness campaign is very important because that's the generation that are most, at, um, most likely to be caught. Ronan, I want to ask um, you about this. Do you think there's preventative action at state level that would make a difference here? Um, well, I'll put it like this, Claire. Some of the biggest companies in the world who spend tens of millions 
on an annual basis in an attempt to protect their organisations, they fall victim. Um, so I would say that the idea that a database is going to fix this is a pipe dream. What has to happen is a very substantial public, public awareness campaign, education, proactive efforts to enhance uh, people's awareness of the problem, uh, education in, in schools and in colleges. And honestly, I think that's the, the, the best we can do, because if we think having a database is going to stop these guys, we couldn't. It might be helpful in, in, in some regard, but what are the Gardaí going to do if a hacker in North Korea manages to clean out somebody's uh, savings, not by hacking their bank account, but by creating a fake payment gateway where they transfer their money and they only realize you know, two days later, that they that the money is gone. So they're they're you know it's you could argue that's caveat emptor, right? Buyer beware. If you transfer all of your money, is that the bank's problem or is that your problem? So I mean, this is very complex. It's very multi-dimensional. There is no silver bullet. In my view, it's education, um, very proactively uh, for 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 the citizens of the state. All right. I, okay. I do think that we'll, we, like we pushed the actual online system on the majority of people when it comes to banking. It's been the new platform they pushed out. There's been no education pushed out with the Banking Federation regarding it. So they want us all to go online, but the actual education, what's required, hasn't actually okay. come so you're forward. Put, you're putting a, an, el an element of that back on the banks to uh, educate and inform their customers about the risks. I it's think in many ways the banks have a beginning to here. It would be more cost effective for the banks to do that because they're dealing with all the fallout from the scams then afterwards. All right, okay, there we'll leave that for now. Uh, my thanks to Lorcan Allen and to Rona Murphy who joined us on Skype tonight. Lots more after this break as Greta Thunberg looks set to become the newest person to get the freedom of Dublin. But is our capital city as climate friendly as she'd like it? Welcome back. Two environmental campaigners have been nominated for the freedom of Dublin City. Veteran broadcaster Duncan Stewart and Greta Thunberg. Well, the Swedish activist has become globally famous for her stance on climate change uh, in the past few years. And the pair were nominated by Lord Mayor Caroline Conroy. And it's the first time that two environmental activists have been honoured. That's not uh, Greta giving her acceptance speech. We are still to wait on that. It has to be formally ratified, I think, next week. And then there may be a ceremony and she may, uh, I was going to say, jet in. She may not jet in. Probably not. She may not jet in. Uh, but um, Tim and Aoife are still here with me. And like just to come to this, it is a first that we have, and we have given freedom of the city to many people, but a sign of our times, perhaps, that we are celebrating the role of environmental activists, Aoife. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think Greta Thunberg is a legend. I mean, she really has put climate on the map, especially for young people. You know, they're like a protest every Friday. She started that by herself. And now it's a global movement. And it is, I suppose, young people who are going to have to deal with the fallout of the climate emergency. So I can't think of a better person to. And I know she gets a lot of flack. I do not understand it whatsoever. So I think it's a good thing. I don't think it will change anything. I mean, we've just seen our latest report said that not only is Ireland missing our climate targets, but also Dublin is the fourth least eco-friendly city in Europe. <laughs> so I don't think it actually means anything um, on paper, but I suppose it is maybe a signal 
that Ireland is and Dublin is looking forward to, you know, looking after the climate more. But. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, she took a while to come back to the Lord Mayor on mm -hmm. this one. Now, maybe that was just because she has plenty of requests and, and a very uh, heavy workload. But do you think, uh, Tim, she may have been weighing up her options as to whether we are doing enough to be sustainable in Dublin and elsewhere? I don't know. I think she, look, I think Dublin's made massive strides in the last few years, I think, you know. Has it? Do you know what? I often look at this from the Cork perspective. We come to Dublin <laughs> okay. and we go... That's what Cork people do. Indeed, we do, <laughs> yeah. Go on. But like, you have a Lewis, you have a really competent um, transportation system. Like, Cork is looking for a light rail for 25 years. We wait another 10 years minimum before we go there. Like, you have so much infrastructure on the ground. The foundations are there for real change. Mm. The foundations in other cities in, in Ireland aren't there. I look at Galway, I look at Limerick, I look at Cork. You're a Fine Gael senator. Yeah. yeah. So those, I mean, from like your perspective, yeah. you were saying this as well about mm. your, your home city of Cork, that you look on with envy at what's happening in so, Dublin and people in Dublin saying, have you been to Dublin City recently? <laughs> but you look at... The traffic the, congestion is chronic. So we don't have a train link out to the airport. There's no underground system as there are in many, and most And then you European look at the traffic on the, on the Monday and Friday, they've changed. Working at home has become a part of normal routine since the pandemic in particular. Like you have bus lanes, which are normal. You have bus connects, which are going through the process of a real dramatic change in Dublin. You have a Lewis that has okay. unbelievable numbers pertaining to it. And I think they're all positive regarding what's happening in Dublin. You're not so positive about what's happening in Cork. And I didn't mean to move away Indeed. from, you know, what's but, being done but, but, in the capital. But do you think, I think you know, one of those strides maybe being made in Dublin is that Cork are severely lacking behind? There's work to be done in the rural towns and villages around Ireland and the other cities. And that's going to be the challenge of our actual climate action plan itself. The foundation works in many of these settlements need to be put in place. And I think that's going to be the real chance because when you look at rural Ireland, transportation is going to be a huge issue. Environmental impacts are going to be a huge issue of how they're going to actually transport themselves. Yeah, nice segue away from um, the capital and, and what we still have to do here. Um, but it is, it is a point that we are not on a par, I suppose, with other European capitals or any like, global capitals in, in where we are public transport wise and, yeah. and, and in other ways. And it's also, this is the thing, it's the hard choices and it's like the awkward conversations that people have to have. And like, this isn't going to be like a Fianna, this isn't a Fianna Gain, a Fianna Fáil Green problem. You know, we've seen Sinn Féin picking fights with the Green Party and saying, you know, it would be better if the Greens weren't in government next time and, you know, trying to pick this fight between farmers and the Green Party as well. So I don't have any great hope that if there's a Sinn Féin government next that this is going to turn around either. There has to be very awkward conversations when it comes to climate and the climate emergency and there's a lot of sacrifices that have to be made and governments don't want to make them because they will be unpopular. It's interesting when you say she elicits a certain response and she really triggers mm. a lot of people. Um, and um, this freedom of the city is subject to approval on June 12th. I wonder, will there be any councillors? Will there be anyone objecting to this? I'd be I very surprised if there'd be so. any objections to it. I think she's a really competent um, yeah. person. I think both of them are. I think both of them bring a real unique element to the actual freedom of the city yeah. cause. Let's not, let's not forget about Duncan Stewart, who Indeed, actually, yeah. uh, you know, and I, I was reading back and he was calling out um, governments for for decades, really, on the climate action that was needed, and he said largely ignored, largely ignored um, in, in government circles, in state circles, in, in media circles as well. I think if you look at his contribution in the media, in particular, to actually get his programs on another pro provider out and about a decade ago, like they were major programs. They informed society what the changes were, and from the ag point of view, I thought he started a debate which is really welcome. 
And I think the agricultural community now have embraced that change and you've seen huge changes in a very, very short space of time. Like you, know, you look at organics, look at nearly 200,000 hectares alone gone to organics this year alone. So the dramatic changes that he talked about are now actually happening. And that shows you, you know, what a changing profile of ours. Not without like. challenge, though, you would Absolutely. admit, there is a significant uh, challenge. Tim, um, yeah, not without challenge there, but uh, Greta may make it down to the farm if she makes it over <laughs> to Dublin to pick up, pick up the freedom of the city. Um, and congrats to Duncan Stewart, too. That is it from us. Our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms. You can also now find us on Instagram and on TikTok. Um, but from all our panel, all the late team here, good night. Take care. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.